From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is the Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Monet, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Here's your host, WUWM General Manager John Hess. Welcome to the UWM Chancellor's Report. I'm your host, WUWM's General Manager John Hess. On today's program, I'll talk with Chancellor Mark Monet for an update on how this fall's UWM semester is progressing. Our students, faculty, and staff finding normalcy amid the rising tide of the Delta variant. And we'll also talk about how UWM is making strides in combating climate change and providing a more sustainable environment on its central and satellite campuses. Mark, thanks for joining me today. Nice to see you. John, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, this semester is starting off, and uh, I guess we're trying to return to what we might consider the new normal. Uh, and talk a little bit about the, you know, your success with limiting the COVID-19 spread and the positivity rates uh, happening in our community and how they're consistent with the general Milwaukee community. Well, that's a really uh, great starting point for our conversation today because of how proud I am of how our campus has come together as a community uh, to continue to recognize the importance of safety, health, and care. You know, just a few starting point, not to not to inundate with statistics or anything, but you know, we've had over 7,700 tests of our students over the last two and a half weeks, and we're running just at about two percent um, positivity rate. We have had 22 or 2300 faculty and staff tests and we're at 1% positivity rate. I challenge you to find a community that has those types of numbers really most anywhere in the country. It's just phenomenally low. And that is attributable not just to our mass mandate, but the high level of vaccinations that we've received. So on that front, we're at uh, today um, and, and this is, you know, toward the end of September when I say this, this is where we have over 77% of our students that are vaccinated. I'm sorry, 77% of our employees and 85% of our students that are vaccinated. And that's just wonderful to have. And we've got a lot of incentives. We've got a lot of educational and encouragement programs to get those numbers higher. And from my understanding, even with organizations that have mandated uh, vaccines because of religious exemptions or because of health reasons, it's hard to get much into the 90s uh, for organizations. So we're getting pretty close um, to that. And we think this is a pretty safe environment to be. But it takes the whole community to, to continue to work on that. And you mentioned, John, in your question, you know, the concept of normalcy. And this is an interesting one because it's so much different than last year. And we're so thrilled. The energy from our students, faculty, and staff being back is infectious. And it's so wonderful. Every time I go across campus, I deliberately try to have as many meetings as I can, you know, in different places because I talk with faculty, students, staff, and it's really neat to hear how excited they are and to have uh, so much energy. Uh, and frankly, for us to be able to do what we do in the world of education in person, it really matters. It's a big, big difference. And uh, I can give a lot of examples, but we're, we're excited and, and uh, really pleased to see uh, the types of things that we've been able to do and the response that we have so far. Well, that, you know, I think you mentioned the, uh, the in-person interaction, both in terms of faculty, staff, and students. Um, tell me a little bit more about what drove you 
in terms of decision making to do more in person there there must have been a lot of data that that came to you regarding you know why this was important for students why this was important for the campus oh you know the data are there you know what has been now confirmed in terms of the loss of education, particularly, um, you know, when you talk about some of the hard science types of areas with high school students, as we see from the large scale data across the country, it's been estimated that juniors and seniors in high schools have lost as much as a half of their potential learning in those years, um, which is staggering. It's just absolutely staggering. But to not have the in-person instruction, to not have the tutoring, to not have that help with homework, to not really be able to ask those types of questions um, and, and to really have that type of care and attention in a small classroom setting. Um, so in college, you know, we we're on the receiving end of that. So, so there's that aspect, but also for college students as well. I think that that um, there's the, the content, uh, but there's also the social or qualitative aspects of, of the in-person learning. And, and to not have that, as well as the camaraderie, um, you know, that rich interpersonal perspective, it's important educationally. But here's some stories that I heard. A story that, that uh, you know, Governor Thompson and I attended a block party and we had hundreds of students, if not, you know, over a thousand. It was just a large number of students. And the overwhelming theme, aside from how happy and pleased people were begging us to make sure we do everything we can to stay open, was kind of the sad stories that you'd hear about a student saying, I did not make a friend last year. I went to college and I didn't make one new friend. That that, I mean, that's a hard thing to hear and a hard thing to think about the entire year. Imagine going, you know, you move to a new community or you leave your home and, and you didn't make a new friend. That's sad. Or the parents' perspective who say, I want Tequila, I want John, I want Janae out of the basement because they're playing the video games with the same three people or the same seven people they hung out with in high school. I don't care what you do. Please have them in person on your campus. So there's an interesting array of stories, but there are uh, large scale data that do talk about the learning loss and we're back. So it's the social development, it's the in-person instruction. That's philosophically what really drove me because I worked with our student association and they said, overwhelmingly, it's so important to be back. They knew the value of it. It's the friends, it's the learning, it's being in research labs with faculty members, it's being in person in the hallway, all those types of conversations that happen in the cafeteria, things that happen in the resident halls. Um, that's, that's what college life is all about. And I think we also know from whether it's our kids or our students, you know, how many times uh, we have heard over the last year and a half they've lost out on the collegiate experience, not being able to attend the athletic events, not going to the plays, not going to the musical activities, all the social things that are part of growing up and in a college type of experience, as well as the internships and the work experiences that have been virtual. So that, if we can help the world become more normal, if we can help learn how to live with the pandemic, and I know that's not easy. I mean. It's hard enough being a student, a college student, um, to have all the syllabi you've got to coordinate, winter tests, winter homework uh, assignments done. You know, what are my new living arrangements? What's my work schedule? All of that that you recall in our undergraduate or graduate school days, those that was that was a lot as it was, juggling all that. And now we've layered this other complexity of the world upon you. And it's a serious threat that, you know, I mean, this is a life or death situation. 
that's that's a lot to put on a young person. And that's why I think we see the mental health issues in addition to the physical health outcomes that we're seeing you know, in terms of a lot of the challenges that you normally don't see in populations at that age. But it, it's, it's completely understandable. You know, I was going to follow up with that, that in terms of this culture of, of care, which is critical on campus to help students not only coming back to be around one another, but also to deal with the trauma of the last year and a half. It's real. It's absolutely uh, uh, measurable in terms of what we've seen across college campuses in this country in terms of the increase in students reporting mental health issues, stress, depression, uh, a number of things, suicidal ideation. It's real. I mean, this is concrete. And that's why you've seen headlines across the UW system. And frankly, uh, whether it's in higher ed journals or other things, popular press articles that talk about the acute issues that our students are, are going through today. I'm really pleased to see how the system, UW system, our Board of Regents and others are so cognizant of this. And frankly, the legislature, which seems to have a, a great appetite for future increases in mental health advisors, in support, and uh, uh, really recognizing that we've been behind for years, and I don't say that about just UW-Milwaukee, talk to our public or private uh, college counterparts, and the same phenomenon exists uh, truly across the country. Uh, so this is something that's overdue, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see the emphasis and increased support for that. But we still have a long way to go, and um, I'm pleased that the Chronicle of Higher Education did a spotlight article on UW-Milwaukee for our trauma-informed care programs that we've rolled out. We're really a model campus in terms of that comprehensive culture to recognize that it's not just in the residence halls, it's in the classrooms, it's in um, uh, everything we do from financial aid, the bursar's office, the totality of it. And that's why we've always stressed, uh, you know, in our campus, we have dedicated centers for student support. We've got uh, our multicultural centers, we've got uh, our different identity centers. So whether you're a military veteran, whether you're uh, African-American or Hispanic, LGBTQ, you name the different dimensions. We've got support centers that, that really help individuals feel comfortable with others like them, um, socio, socio-cultural support, advising, lots of different things that we do. Yeah, I, I would also say that, you know, not only just the pandemic, but, you know, the, um, the unrest with uh, George Floyd's murder and the many things that happened around Black Lives Matters has certainly impacted the campus and impacted students as well. You're absolutely right on that front. I think the whole, the, you know, the social justice issues that are so much of our time, this is one of the most important issues uh, and how we address that, how we how we bring um, those issues to campuses, which, which are oftentimes a place where a lot of those tensions will play out, how we respond, how we engage, how we work. And one of the, the, the big vehicles we've been working on uh, is the care, respect, and expression groups that, that have been uh, working on, you know, how do we deal with those, those um, real issues, the freedom of expression, the ability to, to navigate and understand, how do we educate, and what is our role as a campus, particularly a public uh, campus, where, where you really have um, the need to, to both educate, but also respond and be proactive in a lot of different uh, areas. Uh, so this is, this is like an era, and we may have talked about this sometime back on this program, where we're very much like the 60s in terms of a lot of the student and community activism, a lot of the concerns uh, that, that are long overdue, issues that do need to be addressed and discussed and policy reformation and, and issues like that. And campuses are the place where a lot of that plays out. 
You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Mark, because in the 60s, probably there was no greater divide than maybe a college campus and the communities that surrounded it. But it feels like from for for today's, it, it feels like very much that the campus is in sync with the communities as opposed to the other way around. So uh, activism on college campuses are in many ways enhanced or enforced uh, or, or helped along by what the communities are going through uh, as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think particularly in the urban areas, um, you're seeing more of that. I look at what's happening in Portland State or I look at, um, you know, in in uh, different urban locations um, and I, I see there's 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 simpatico there. There's there's alignment. And and I, I think you're right. Um, and and I think about uh, some of the things that used to happen, whether it was on this campus or others where there was a lot of protest against the campus. I think you're right. I think there's much better alignment and and I think that um, I can speak in, for UWM, I think we're trying to bring, uh, whether it's in terms of speakers or our own internal approach, really trying to find that balance to show both sides and to have an opportunity to, to have candidates, whether it's when we host debates and oftentimes in collaboration with your radio uh, station, uh, John, in terms of, of the kinds of uh, collaboration uh, to work with, with other media outlets um, to host uh, whether it's elected officials or to have discourse on, on different topics. And I, I have to say, I really admire what you and your team of programmers have done uh, to bring voices of the community forward and to have more awareness and to have individuals recognize that we have left a lot of individuals behind uh, in this community. And while your programs haven't always focused on this aspect, I've always tried to bring forward uh, through a, a number of our speakers and the programs that we're, we're putting on at the university, the importance of education as the great uh, door opener, as the great, as the great uh, way to, to uh, enable and, and liberate, frankly, uh, individuals to have opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have. And, and more specifically, education and employment are, are critical. And if we cannot do that. And I think, frankly, we have not done that particularly well in this state. We have held too many people back and it's not deliberate. It's uh, oftentimes circumstances, whether it's around the cost of higher ed or access to quality K-12. If you look at the graduation rates in K-12 and in particular, don't get me started on the achievement gap again. <laughs> you know, that's something that I have put a lot of time, sweat, our effort into helping close that with that equity lens and whether it's through the work that we're doing with higher ed regional alliance or m cubed or others to really make a difference we have a long way to go and i am firmly uh, of the belief that um, we can do and are doing uh, a better job but we need to do more uh, on on those efforts to reduce the cost to have students better prepared for the for employment through education programs and better linkages uh, that we can make with employers while students are in school. So that to me is, is why I'm so excited about getting back on track and getting back to normalcy because we, we have been held back from that. And frankly, uh, what we know from reports such as the Heckinger Report and others is that students at lower income levels and particularly our black and brown communities have been not only, to your point earlier, They've not only been more infected by that learning loss, but they're less likely to continue in higher ed today um, because the cost and the recovery is not equal.
Not everybody's coming back um, and resilient in the same way uh, that, that, that others are. So, so that makes it even more important for an access institution, one that has in its DNA to serve underserved uh, populations, the criticality of us doing even more uh, to help those in great need. Mark, you mentioned the Heckinger Report. Can you go into a little more detail about that for our audience so they understand what that is? Yeah, thank you. That's basically, it's a, a think tank that works specifically on just education issues in this country. And one of the findings that they have is that if your income is 70, family income is $75,000 or less, you're only, you're, you're, you're uh, two thirds less likely to attend college this fall than if your family income were 100,000 or higher. What a delta, what a gap that is. And just to repeat that, you're two thirds less likely to attend college if your income is 75,000 or less compared to those that, that are you know well to do of, of family incomes of 100,000 or more. That's so dramatic. That, that stat alone is just says to me an awful lot. And as I think about being the chancellor of the campus that has the highest Pell Grant need, that is the federal uh, federal Pell Grant program uh, that, that is an objective measure of the student's need based on their FAFSA or the financial aid, free uh, application for financial aid. That tells you when you have you have the greatest need on this campus and we serve those students in, in, in those uh, lower income populations, not overall, but we have the highest percentage of, of students that have that need. That is uh, why we have devoted so much to the emergency grant fund, the Chancellor Student Success Fund, why we've had such wonderful success with our donors and philanthropic effort uh, to come forward and to really help those students, whether it's with rent, food insecurity, uh, cell, cellular, you know, wireless service, tuition assistance, and a number of things that, that have made a big difference. And also why we've looked at our own internal processes and said, how are we slowing students down? What obstacles or barriers are we putting in place? We've been uh, getting great press for uh, helping through the Moonshot for Equity look at our holds and our transfer pathways. And we have over 400, it's almost 500 students on our campus this year that we otherwise would not have had because of artificial holds um, where we held somebody's registration up because they owed 27 or $55. Well, we wiped that kind of stuff out and we have short-term immediate kind of financial uh, help that, 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 you know, up to 500. And in some cases we've made some exceptions and gone up to a thousand or $1,500. And that keeps the student in class that helps them make progress, but we've really made some big differences in those areas for students being able to to, to uh, continue their studies and ultimately graduate. You know, that you mentioned about the uh, disparity in income, and obviously that gets back to more of what you were talking about in terms of economic development and jobs and economic prosperity of our of our area of, of the city of Milwaukee and, and the region. Um, talk a little bit about those local projects that have you've been really working on with community leaders to try to try to increase that to to help the economic picture in Milwaukee really to improve so that it can in some ways lift all boats. John, I don't know if I've shared with you before uh, a new initiative that we're part of. It's called the Milwaukee Anchor Collaborative. And this is where um, you can affectionately refer to our group as the EDS and the MEDS. <laughs> so we've got all the major healthcare providers, children's, 
Freighter, Medical College, Ascension, uh, Advocate Aurora Healthcare, and you've got Marquette University and UW-Milwaukee that have two principal goals. We've looked at the greatest zip codes of need from an employment and procurement perspective and said, how can we target the purchasing power of these immense organizations? Collectively, it's in the billions of dollars. How can we increase the spend in these communities from a supply chain perspective, which, as you know, drives the employment, drives the health and the wealth of those communities? And at the same time, how can we grow employment from those particular zip codes? So we look at those areas in greatest need in both those areas, and we've got a targeted set of goals and actions that are underway. We're working with the city of Milwaukee, and this is a terrific initiative that's just one example of showing how we're really driving and, and working in this area. I mentioned also another one, uh, which is the Higher Ed Regional Alliance. And with an equity lens, what we're trying to do is increase the number of students who graduate completion. And you may recall that we in this region have, um, uh, uh, in terms of the college graduates, we, we um, don't compete very well with other states. We'd like to get this uh, state to have uh, this particular region to have 60% of, of the, the uh, individuals in the region, adults, to have a two-year, four-year, or, or a certificate degree um, that would enable them to have much greater employment opportunities, to have better income and to, to better meet employment needs. I can tell you from UWM's perspective, when we think about the alignment with employers, we graduate on average over 5,200 students per year. And it's the most diverse four-year institution of the scale and size in terms of the absolute numbers of uh, diverse students. And that's a great thing for this region to have. But we need to really, you know, it's, it's bigger than one institution. It's bigger than just UWM. It really is this collective entity. And that's where the Higher Ed Regional Alliance plays such a big part to have all 18 two-year, four-year academic institutions in this region working with 11 community organizations. So we have the M7, Greater Milwaukee Committee, MMAC. We have those types of organizations. We also have um, linkages with the uh, Kenosha, Racine, Higher Expectations, um, Milwaukee Succeeds. These are our linkages with K-12. And then we've got a lot of the community organizations such as the Milwaukee Urban League, uh, Hispanic Collaborative, Hispanic Professionals of Greater Milwaukee, the African American Leadership Group, ALAM, the Asian American uh, Group, uh, uh, Elevation, and others um, that are all working together on getting more students through college, one. Two, focusing on what can we do as collaborators together. So brad badging and certificate programs, better transfer programs, because that's an obstacle a lot of times. And the third goal is better linkages with employers so that employers don't have to go to 18 organizations. How can they do things virtually? How can they do things electronically that students can apply simultaneously and, and, and hear about our openings? So we've made progress on all those different fronts. So those are, again, working on those pillars of education and employment, bringing them together. We've created an industry forum uh, through the Higher Ed Regional Alliance to help work on curriculum. And we've got a number of uh, other things in, in, uh, in the works in those areas. You know, Mark, we, um, so we're talking about the economic uh, sort of picture, but also I think one of the things that we look at 
also is, you know, we talk about sustainability and climate change, and obviously you mentioned that in uh, neighborhoods of color, inner city, that um, disparity in climate change is really acute. Um, talk a little bit about what UWM is doing, not only from an academic standpoint, but from a research standpoint regarding sustainability and climate change, especially here in the upper Midwest. You know, uh, it's, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's interesting you ask about that because this is like a stealth issue, <laughs> meaning I haven't been out there talking about this nearly enough. And I'm really glad you asked about it because we're a campus that has on every facet, whether it's in terms of what we actually do, in terms of how our buildings are lead or, or you know, certified with respect to their efficiency and how we've driven 20% of our um, energy costs down and how we've done a lot of things to reduce our footprint. So there's what we do, but how we educate the number of classes that we have in terms of talking about sustainability, climate change, and other elements, but also um, our, our role from a research perspective and the number of faculty who are dedicated, the hundreds of faculty who are some of the leading scientists in terms of documenting, chronicling this, and talking about it in a lot of different ways. If you don't think it's important, I'll share with you um, what we're seeing right now in terms of the environmental impact and how it's affecting adversely education. Who would have known that all these impacts, we know about the, the you know, the, the, the loss of home ownership, or we know about the effects of smog and, and temperature issues. You think about that in a general way. But I recently read this report. It came out, and it's another Hetchinger report that came out um, in the mid-September. And it's amazing how all these different um, devastated uh, uh, communities because of fire, smoke, heat, lack of air conditioning, how they're disrupting the learning environment, how psychologically affected adversely so many of our students are. I'm talking K-12 colleges and things. It's quite dramatic. Um, so meanwhile, we've got a campus that is leading the way. We were the first campus in the state of Wisconsin to receive a U.S. Department of Education Green Ribbon Award for all the green things that we do. We've received a number of different awards for the greenness and the types of things that we've been able to teach, conduct research on, and um, really, really uh, expand. I think in a future program, talking more about those areas, having some of our faculty and the community collaborators would be really powerful. Um, just on the issue of energy alone, think about Kamala Harris, the Vice President of the United States. She came in and she looked at the kind of work we're doing around energy efficiency and the kind of programs that we have that are funded uh, with great partners like We Energies on helping companies reduce their energy consumption by 10, 15, and 20%. That's happening through the research and the student projects at UW-Milwaukee in many manufacturing companies across the state of Wisconsin. So there's many, many examples I could give you of how we're helping with sustainability. Well, Mark, it sounds like you've been busy on many fronts this fall, doing a lot of stuff. But just quickly in the time we've got left, what are you doing otherwise? How are you doing, uh, how are you, how are you doing with your R&R? <laughs> I'm doing great. I feel so fortunate that to, to live in Wisconsin and to have the opportunities that we have in terms of the outdoor recreation. Uh, we've got Summerfest back. We've got, you know, this com community's coming back in so many different ways, restaurants opening in, in, in wonderful ways, a lot of outdoor activities. Personally, I'm on the bike. I'm uh, walking a lot. I'm back in the swimming pool doing a terrific, terrific uh, 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 job in terms of trying to stay healthy. How about you, John? Are you able to enjoy the, the great uh, outdoor activities and, and fun things that Wisconsin has? 
You know, I absolutely have. It's been it's been great to be in Wisconsin in the fall and to uh, actually to start to see the change uh, be from summer to fall and uh, lovely to see all the wonderful activity along the lake and things like that. So I've enjoyed it immensely as well. Uh, we've been talking today with Chancellor Mark Monet for an update on how this fall's UWM semester is progressing. And uh, we will continue to touch base with uh, Chancellor Monet every month on uh, different issues around UWM. For the Chancellor's Report, I'm WUWM's General Manager, John Hess. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Monet, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. If you'd like more information, go to uwm.edu slash chancellor.